back to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. I'm Major Tom Fox, your host, and I'm excited to share this first episode of the new semester with you. Our guest is Lieutenant Colonel Sean Morrow, the incoming director of the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point and the recent commander of the United Nations Command Security Battalion at the Demilitarized Zone in Korea. This summer, he published an excellent piece in the Wilson Quarterly reflecting on his experience in command during a hugely eventful period in intra-Korean and U.S.-Korean relations. I highly recommend it, and it's linked in the show notes. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Thanks for joining us, Colonel Morrow, for this episode of the Social Podcast, and digging in on your piece, your recent piece in the Wilson Quarterly, Bridges at Panmunjom. Thanks, Tom. It's really good to be here, and uh, I'm grateful for your time and the the opportunity to, to share a little bit of the story of United Nations Command and, and what was going on on the Korean Peninsula over the last two years. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this uh, conversation. I really enjoyed the piece. You get the reader hooked in very early with your opening line about being an infantryman by trade, not knowing a lot about bridges, not being a civil engineer, but bridges became something that you worked on quite a bit as the, the commander of the UN Security Battalion at the DMZ. I think a lot of people have this image of what the DMZ looks like, and whether it's from the movies or just seeing the, the photos that appear in newspapers when there's big summits there. But bridges play a big role, and you used the kind of narrative tool of bridges, you know, serving as connections between people, connections between countries, to kind of show what that experience of being in command there was like. What made that imagery work so well for you? And how did you think about bridges in crafting this piece? Sure. I think first, the reason that bridges matter so much in Panmunjom is because of the actual physical presence of some historically significant bridges. There's the Bridge of No Return, uh, where the Indian Army, as part of United Nations Command, helped facilitate the return of over 100,000 prisoners of war towards the end of the Korean War, both uh, north to south and south to north. Uh, there's the bridge where Arthur Boniface and Lieutenant Mark Barrett lost their lives in 1976 in a fight with the North Koreans. A couple of our officers were killed there. Uh, there's the bridge where Sergeant O, uh, North Korean Sergeant O, defected in November of 2017. So all of these different bridges and moments of history are an important part of the unit and who we are and what we've done uh, over the course of 70 years. However, anytime you're talking about human relationships, the, the idea of bridges is equally important. And I think that uh, that's what prompted me to write the story in that manner, uh, is this idea of the physical bridges sometimes being open, sometimes being closed, sometimes being a place of reunification, sometimes being a place of violence, uh, and then how that, that relates to interacting with the North Koreans, both us at the tactical level, uh, as well as our unit providing the opportunity for senior leaders, general officers, diplomats, uh, and even the president to to interact and try to create more bridges right there in Panmunjom. So, so the bridge metaphor seemed to work, and that's what we ran with. Yeah, I definitely think it worked really well, and it does draw your attention to some of those big incidents uh, in history. That I, I didn't know personally about that 1976 incident until doing a little bit more reading in preparation for this, and you know, really powerful stories. Uh, about how that happened. Do you, are there any ways in which the unit keeps the, the memory of that alive? Oh, absolutely. The the Barrett Boniface Memorial uh, has been going on every year for the last 43 years. Uh, they just had it uh, last week. The, the incident happened in August. 
uh, but due to some exercises, uh, they wanted to postpone it so more people could attend. So they had that uh, memorial last week. Uh, the unit is still in touch with Arthur Boniface's widow, Marcia Boniface. Uh, the Boniface family was actually stationed at West Point uh, when Art was killed, and his grave is still in the cemetery here on, on West Point. Uh, but she sent a note last night to the current commander and to me, just, just thanking everyone for continuing to remember her husband and just letting us know that her family continues to think about the troops uh, standing there in family John. Wow, that's fantastic. History is really alive in very real ways uh, at the DMZ. And that actually brings me to my next line of questioning, because the Korean Peninsula is a flashpoint and has been a crisis point. It was in 1976 when that incident occurred. It remains so today. A couple of years ago, there was talk of a you know bloody nose attack and you know how we handle North Korea kind of demonstrating that they have nuclear weapons and some type of intercontinental capability. More recently, Kim Jong-un's sister is starting to get into the mix, overseeing the demolition of the liaison office in Kaesong, just north of the DMZ. Given all this high-level maneuvering and high-level, sometimes crisis, sometimes not, but always strategically and politically important stuff happening, how do you keep your soldiers focused on the day-to-day mission, um, and how do you kind of connect what they are doing to uh, its strategic importance? That's a really good question. Uh, the way the way we did it in Panmunjom and the way that they continue to do it now is, uh, frankly, running a, a traditional old school payday activities uh, where we brought the whole unit together once a month uh, around payday. And in addition to the administrative things that we would take care of in the in the mandatory army classes we'd run like in any army unit, we would take a minute to just look at the last month and who came and what policymakers were on the ground. And to show them, hey, you secured this meeting between these diplomats. And here's a story in the Washington Post reporting on it 48 hours later. Here is uh, a visitor from the Office of Economic Cooperation and Development. And here is some results of how they allocated funding shortly after you helped them understand what's going on on the Korean Peninsula. So what we, we would always try to take the time to show them what they had done and what were the effects of what they had done. Additionally, we would look forward to the upcoming month and say, hey, here's here's some visitors that we're expecting. Here's why they're important. We would often have privates briefing members of Congress and senators. And I, I don't just mean the initial hello and the greeting, but actually laying out what had happened on the Korean Peninsula, telling the history um, and explaining the value of Panmunjom. And so we would expect those privates to prepare in the same way any of our officers would for a strategic engagement like that. So I think uh, trying to always inform our unit uh, and helping them understand the results was was a key piece of, of helping a tactical formation understand how they had some strategic implications. Yeah, that's amazing. In the age of the, the so-called strategic corporal, if you actually have privates briefing members of Congress, that's connected to the strategic picture in a way that's actually often hard for leaders, like, you know, tactical leaders at the tactical level to communicate, you know, how they're fitting into a strategic picture, but being able to, you know, draw a straight line between the security you're providing and what, what is happening in these meetings and why it matters it must be really rewarding, uh, not only for you as a leader, but also for your formation. I think there's another more cynical read of that, though, where you fe- you might feel like kind of a pawn in a big game of chess. And I would worry about, you know, e- even as a leader, but certainly as soldiers, maybe not thinking that what they're doing matters and that they're they're kind of a, a small picture. Is it was that something you had to fight in terms of motivation or cynicism? 
Uh, within the unit, I don't think we had to, but I could I could understand how someone from the outside could view what we do and and suggest that hey, regardless of what you guys do day in and day out in Pama Jump, nothing's really going to change uh, at the highest levels. And we actually try to get ahead of this question uh, with new soldiers and new NCOs by showing them just the straight line between the tactical reactions to the Sergeant O defection and what happened in the months after. When Sergeant O defected, the North Koreans shot approximately 30 rounds into our side of the camp, uh, hitting Sergeant O, North Korean Sergeant O, five times. Our troops never were directly under fire. Uh, and so as Sergeant O defected, our troops held their fire. And that took some initial criticism, especially in the Korean press, about the fact that UNC Security Battalion did not kill the, the small squad of North Korean soldiers that were attacking one of their own. However, what you have to think of is that those were our rules of engagement. We, we were not being directly engaged. And Sergeant Oh was a North Korean citizen in North Korean territory uh, until he crossed that line, at which point we secured him, provided him medical aid, and uh, U.S. soldiers effectively saved his life. But had we shot six North Korean soldiers on the border in Panmunjom in November of 2017, one has to wonder, of course, you can't rewrite history, but one has to wonder if Kim Jong-un gives the same speech on New Year's Eve prior to 2018, and if North Korean soldiers come down and participate in the Pyeongchang Olympics, uh, if the April 2018 summit between President Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un happens. Maybe it does, uh, and I certainly don't want to overstate the importance of a tactical unit, uh, but I think restraint and control in Panmunjom gives people the confidence that they can come there and they can have dialogue and they're going to be okay. So I think that the troops in the, at that time diffused the situation, uh, rescued the defector, and could have easily killed those who were engaging him, but opted not to. And so I, I think we tell that story to our troops and help them recognize that what, what you do does matter. And there could be second and third order effects at the tactical level that have some strategic implications. Now, the positive side of that is in later in 2018, when we started having a lot of engagement at the at the lowest level as a result of implementing President Moon Jae-in and Chairman Kim's comprehensive military agreement, which General Brooks and subsequently General Abrams supported as something that helped United Nations Command do their job more effectively. Uh, that, that agreement was something that UNC supported. And the more we were able to interact with the North Koreans, the less tension you saw in Panmunjom every single day. And maybe maybe that's not exactly what, what turned a head of state engagement, or maybe that's not exactly what led to the president coming out the following summer. But I, I do think that when diplomats, general officers, policymakers are comfortable coming to a place to talk, having that place for dialogue and knowing that it's safe and that if something does start to get hectic, it will be de-escalated. I think it just creates an opportunity for that dialogue to happen, especially when you think that there's nowhere else in the world really where that dialogue is happening between North Korea and the United States or the Republic of Korea. That's so true. And you had that powerful vignette in uh, the article about hearing that phone ring that we'd you know, been waiting, waiting to hear the phone ring for years and years and it never did. And then you have this, you know, this thawing of tension. You have more of these personal interactions that you yourself had. And then, you know, throughout the unit interacting with the, the KPA soldiers. And then, you know, it, it does in a non inconsequential way, set the conditions for 
much bigger, more important things to happen. There, there's a connection there also to just how present the, and alive the, the history of the Korean War is. You know, as we talked about a little bit previously, you know, my background is in China and studying China and the Korean War as you know, a focal point for U.S.-China relations is super fascinating. Well, obviously, it's also super fascinating in the Korea-to-Korea context, but the U.S. and China being kind of the supporters of South Korea and North Korea, you might be able to classify the Korean War as a U.S.-China war as well. And although it's you know sometimes underappreciated as a forgotten war, that history is very much alive in the joint security area and something you, you see every day. It's also interesting that the U.S. side or the South Korean side was you know flying the uh, underneath the United Nations command. And like we've talked about today, it's the, the U.N. security battalion, joint security area that you are in command of. How do you deal with like the, the headquarters relationships and seeing, you know, how it's a U.S. mission, but you know, flying a, a U.N. flag? So that's a really interesting question that many, many people confuse uh, and think that we are a UN mission. We are, we are, in fact, not a UN mission in the sense that you'd see blue helmets and blue berets working around the world on, on missions to support UN goals. When the Korean War started, the UN itself was just getting its legs under it as an in- international institution. And they were still figuring out, you know, how do you respond to, to something that's going on in the world that poses a threat to a member, a member nation. And so when they passed their security council resolutions in the summer of 1950, they, they condemned the attacks, uh, from North Korea on, on South Korea. They called for countries around the world to step up, to defend the Republic of Korea from the North Korean invasion. And then, uh, they, they said they wanted the United States to lead this mission under the UN flag. Uh, so different from today when there's a UN mission that then selects a French general to command that UN mission or a U.S. general to command that mission. It was a U.S.-led mission that was flying the UN flag um, almost symbolically. Now, it was still absolutely an alliance of nearly 20 nations that came to the aid of South Korea at the time. Uh, But to this day, uh, even as the UN has changed how they do business, they never rescinded that Security Council resolution. And so although we fly the UN flag and we're proud to fly the UN flag uh, and we understand the symbolism of that, uh, United Nations Command still reports uh, to the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff directly and not to, to New York. Now, there's plenty of collaboration and ensuring that the UN is aware of the things that we're doing, but it is absolutely a U.S. mission that's flying the UN flag. That's a really common misperception uh, from what I've you know seen and understood. So yeah, thank you for clarifying for that for for our audience. It's a, a definitely a vestige of of history as well. That's you know alive and well. You might think that China would have vetoed, given their seat on the Security Council at the time. You know, as you mentioned, the UN just standing up. But people should be reminded that the Republic of China was the one holding that UN seat, which is. Uh, now the government of Taiwan at the time. So, you know, again, looking at that like high, high level strategic uh, geopolitics uh, that were very different uh, then and now. Yeah, if, if I could expand on that a little bit, a fascinating piece of history uh, around the vetoes and the United Nations uh, Security Council. As you mentioned, the Republic of China was holding that seat in 1950. As a result of that, 
the Soviet Union was boycotting sitting at the table uh, at the Security Council. So one can imagine an alternate history when the Soviet Union vetoes that Security Council resolution asking the world to come to the aid of North Korea. Uh, however, they were not at work the day that that resolution passed. So it passed uh, four to zero as opposed to five to zero um, or four to one with a veto. And I, I think the moral of that story is show up to work. Certainly a powerful one. Uh, and you know, the, the game of power politics is, is still playing out in the UN in different ways to this day. I'd like to ask a, a follow-up question about, you know, maybe some type of juicy personal anecdote of interacting with the Korean People's Army, the, the North Korean Army there at the DMZ. The military does provide a set of shared experiences, and we've seen, you know, even across, you know, friendly and enemy lines, whether it's, you know, playing soccer in the First World War any number of really interesting military to military exchanges. Did you have any anything like that in your interactions with uh, the KPA at the DMZ? We we absolutely did. You know, in a previous conversation, you and I had talked a little bit about trust uh, and how I mentioned at one point in my article that uh, the, the KPA wanted to inspect essentially a hollowed out ramp uh, into one of our buildings on the south side that they were entitled to inspect. And, and when we showed we were willing to essentially break it open and show it to them. They said, hey, don't don't worry, we trust you. Uh, now, now, trust is, is an interesting word, uh, both in the interpersonal dynamics in Panmunjom, but also in great power politics and, and trying to understand intentions and things like that. I will say what happens in Panmunjom is oftentimes symbolic trust. Uh, so one example is that when, when we removed our weapons from Panmunjom and when the North Koreans removed their weapons, on the north side guard towers that used to hold 50 caliber machine guns uh, and small anti-tank weapons uh, of the KPA, we locked those towers with, with our locks and our keys. And then when they came down, we removed our, our weapons from Panmunjom. North Korean locks and North Korean keys were put on our guard towers. Now, any one of us could hit it with a, a sledgehammer and get into our towers and reoccupy on extremely short notice. But that doesn't matter. I, I think what mattered there is the, the symbolism, the, the effort to take small steps toward building trust, uh, to try to draw a, a parallel. In 2007 in Iraq, I had a brigade commander uh, talk about looking for opportunities to not have your body armor on outside the wire. If, if you could even create conditions where you had an area so locked down that you could feel safe in a town uh, or a town center, even though practice would would dictate you should be in your body armor. He said, hey, if you can take it off, take it off, because sometimes the perception of security is just as important as actual security. And I, and I think that it goes there with trust as well. And essentially what we were doing with the North Koreans at the tactical level was practicing trust. So we would offer a small tidbit that might be meaningless, but then hold to our word on that and just show them that the things we said we were going to do, we were going to do. Uh, and then they would do the same in exchange for us. So those were those were ways that we tried to build interpersonal relationships. And a, an anecdote that I'll that I'll relay here in the podcast from the article is really just the Christmas dinner uh, anecdote. And it's that uh, we we had been having good relations, been speaking on more familiar terms, talking about our military experiences, talking about our families, and so. 
through tremendous support of, uh, of, of our boss, who is currently the deputy commander at Indo-PACOM, Lieutenant General Mark Minahan. I said, hey, sir, I, I would like to invite them to Christmas dinner on the border, uh, reminiscent of World War II, just everyone setting down their weapons and, and sharing a cigarette. And uh, he fully supported it. He said, do it. And so we created an invitation and uh, offered it to them three times. They read it every time, but refused to formally take it. Uh, we called across on the hotline, telling them we, we would love for a small contingent of their officers uh, to meet us for Christmas dinner. Uh, and then on Christmas Day, we went up there. We set up the dinner. We opened all the doors on the border. Uh, so we were physically in North Korea, and they didn't come. And we waited for an hour, uh, about 10 of us, uh, officers, NCOs, and pri- a couple privates, because it was, it was important for us to kind of show what an army and a democracy looks like and the things that we value in the United States Army. And they sent some cameramen down, took, took a lot of photos, tried to see what was going on. And we just showed them, hey, we said we were gonna have Christmas dinner and it's here. And they never showed up. And I left that day feeling like we had failed. Like like I swung and missed and uh, like I, I was too ambitious for them. So I, I felt like we failed. So I went back, linked in with the troops down at Camp Boniface and finished celebrating Christmas. A few days later, a North Korean soldier was away from his political minder. Oftentimes they have political minders that are always with them and oftentimes always recording everything that's said between us. But somehow it was it was just him and I and a translator. And he said, he said, Lieutenant Colonel Morrow, thank you for inviting us to your Christmas. We wanted to come, but we weren't allowed to. And I feel like that is the kind of of small gesture that took tremendous courage for him to admit, uh, because, you know, had, had anyone known that he had said that, I, I think he would have found himself in, in some hot water. But he said that. And I think that those are the little things that U.S. soldiers can do anywhere in the world uh, that might not have any strategic impact, but just start to create the trickle effect of, of what's possible with human relationships, with a little bit of trust and, and kind of a, a start to building a bridge. Maybe it doesn't have a strategic impact that day, but you don't know how that seed that you plant that day might you know, go on uh, and matter in the future. If that you know soldier continues to be successful and is someday a general in the Korean People's Army, and you know who, who knows right. where, where where that goes and and the beginnings of trust, like you said, it's a it, it may start symbolically, but as you build reciprocity and you show that you're willing to hold yourself to your own commitments, and the other side does the same thing, that's the foundations of trust, micro foundations, if we want to get. A, a bit overly academic about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what we were always trying to do uh, was just show them that w- what they've been taught about us does not resonate. Like at every time they came down with a perception of what an American is and how we felt about North Korea, uh, it's it's part of part of their indoctrination in their everyday life of what America is. And I always wanted our troops at every level, from private on up to show them that what they thought to make them question what they thought like did all these things that they're telling me it doesn't seem like that's like that's really the truth about this these soldiers about this professional army about the because we had 700 Koreans in our battalion as well and uh it was important for them to to demonstrate respect professionalism and I think I was pretty proud of the soldiers both U.S. and Korean they did a great job of that yeah, that's fantastic. And it actually connects to another question I have for you about kind of the role of 
the soldier scholar, uh, because your own military career has reflected a balance between, you know, a muddy boot soldier as well as, you know, a real scholar. You left Korea and went uh, straight back to the University of Chicago to finish up a PhD there. You've you know, previously studied uh, Irish literature and taught in the Department of English and Philosophy here at West Point. Now you're coming back uh, to the Combating Terrorism Center within the Department of Social Sciences uh, here at West Point. For me, it's something I you know, hope to emulate in my own career, and I think it's a really important part of the way we create officers in the United States Army, because your academic work can inform your time in those muddy boots positions as an officer. So how, how do you see your academic work contributing to your success in command, and how does your time in command or your time as a muddy boot soldier inform your academic work? About two weeks ago, I had one of my peers uh, who can, earned his PhD in political science at MIT and just finished up uh, battalion command in Germany and in Poland. Uh, and he was passing through West Point and stopped in for dinner. And he said, hey, is your, is your academic work, like how often did you use it in battalion command? And I, I said, Tim, I, I think I used it every single day. And he said, me too, me too. He said every single day, whether it was figuring out what the enemy was going to do in an operational setting to using, using data to just try to figure out what, what to do next regarding COVID. He said, everything we did, I felt like my time at MIT helped me. And I don't think that that's understating it at all. I, I think that the army has, has really been generous in giving me opportunities to, to study at civilian institutions. And the first opportunity was, you know, really studying narratives before going to the English department there at West Point understanding the stories people tell and why they tell them and and how those stories shape how a population feels. Uh, I feel like that is always something that was going on at the highest levels on the Korean Peninsula to even the lowest levels to trying to figure out the narrative that these North Koreans are trying to craft and what they what they do believe, what they want to believe about their place in the world as individuals, but additionally as as a nation. And uh, so I was always thinking about narrative and and what the narrative was saying, you know, more immediately, uh, my time studying political science just really helped me question assumptions. I always wanted to know, hey, is this correlation or is this something causal? What what other variables are working on what we're seeing here in Panmunjom? Who else is interested? What are the intentions of, of any party? Uh, so So I think that my academic work really helped me become a better army officer. And I'm very grateful for the opportunities that, that I got through through West Point and through advanced strategic planning and policy program out of Fort Leavenworth. It's, it's certainly an underappreciated aspect of advanced education is how often you can apply it. Um, and to your point, it's not it's not only the social sciences. Obviously, we have a little bit of a bias for the social sciences in the, the social department, but your studies in uh, English you know, also contributed to your success uh, as an officer and thinking about problems at the tactical level. And then as you continue uh, to move up the ranks, really, really fascinating and awesome to hear how that played out at the border within the DMZ. Um, obviously, you've got a bunch of stories that you can continue to continue to tell and share uh, during your time here uh, and going forward. And we really appreciate uh, you taking the time to, to join us on the podcast today, sir. Fantastic conversation. Uh, so, so thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Uh, you're doing a great job with this program, and uh, and I'm honored to be a part of one of the one of the early podcasts. And I look forward to seeing you around Lincoln Hall. 
Thanks for listening. If you want to dig deeper on North Korea, Colonel Morrow recommended a recent episode of The Capital Cable from CSIS featuring General Abrams, the commander of U.S. Forces Korea. Also, CSIS's podcast, The Impossible State, led by Victor Cha, is well worth checking out. Links to both in the show notes. Remember to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not reflect the official positions of West Point, the United States Army, or the Department of Defense. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us at socialresearchlab at westpoint.edu to let us know what you think and what you want to hear next. Special thanks, as always, to the West Point Band for providing our music.